Good morning. The kids can head off to uh, Children's Church with Ann and Chloe in the back there. It is good to be with you again this morning. I look forward to this time um, each week as we continue to walk through uh, 1 Thessalonians. And um, as we look to the Lord in prayer, I'm going to look to the Lord in his word. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Father, thank you that you have given us your spirit, that you have promised that he will guide us into all truth. We do pray that he would do that work this morning, that the word which is preached would be glorifying to you, that you would take from that wisdom which you have, which is pure and peaceable and holy and right and good and praiseworthy. Would you impart that to our hearts this morning? And may we receive it with humility as the Spirit implants it because it is able to save our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking last week um, about how we know God and how we love God. How do we know that we love God? And what do we do when circumstances uh, go awry? I mean, and we asked the question, how do we really know anything? Right? Um, my son and I have been watching through the Lord of the Rings. Right? So we started watching through this. Now we started in... Uh, in book order, so we started with The Hobbit, right? I had to start with Lord of the Rings and wait for The Hobbit to come out. Um, but we were watching through that, and uh, we recently got to the scene um, where Frodo and Sam are with Gollum in the Dead Marshes, right? And if you don't know this scene, they're on a lonely journey, a, you know, a quest that seems impossible, and... Uh, Gollum is a person who once had the ring that Frodo now carries. Um, it's a powerful ring. And um, they're walking through the marshes and they're just starving, right? Uh, Frodo has this little triangular piece of elvish bread. You know, he takes a bite and they say one bite is enough to satisfy a grown man for a whole month or a whole day, right? And each hobbit eats like three of them every meal. <laughs> so hobbits eat a lot. And they're starving. And Gollum himself is starving. He hasn't had anything to eat. He can't eat the elvish bread because he doesn't like it. Uh, and he expresses this and he says, we is famished. You know, we is famished. And Sam doesn't really care because Sam doesn't like Gollum. But there's a scene in this moment of intimacy between the two of them, uh, Frodo and, and Gollum, where uh, Gollum says, Master cares. Yes, because Master knows. Master knows the precious. And he knows once the precious gets a hold of you, it never lets go. And you start to see uh, whether you're reading the books or you're watching the movie, you start to see that Gollum recognizes something in Frodo because he experienced it himself. Because he carried the ring, he understands something that Sam doesn't yet get. And this, this is what we're talking about in this whole passage, is 
we know things because of our experience with them, because we see the same things happening in other people, because we've, it's happened in us ourselves, and so we come to learn and know by doing, right? And so you start to see at this point in the movie that Gollum and Frodo are starting to recognize something and have intimacy in their conversation together because they share a common knowledge that Sam doesn't have. And what's cool about our passage is it represents this shared knowledge of Christian experience that is the first written record of such an experience in the New Testament. Um, you might say, Dan, that's a little confusing because, you know, Thessalonians is like way back in, the, in the, the New Testament, right? We have the Gospels at the beginning. But if you remember to what we said a couple of weeks ago, um, Thessalonians was written like 49 or 50 A.D., the earliest gospel, which was the gospel of Mark, wasn't written until 54, 55, or 56. So the, the letter to the Thessalonians was probably the first widely circulated letter that had a story of repentance, faith, and discipleship in it. The letter to the Galatians is the only one that precedes us, uh, precedes Thessalonians, and it doesn't really have a lot of that stuff in there. And so it's awesome to look at this this picture of intimacy, of knowledge, of shared experience, right, that we've talked about, and to see how it is played out in the church from the very beginning. Um, and answering the question, what do we do when we receive faith, uh, and then things go wrong, and we start to doubt, and we start to have fears, and we start to think, I don't know if I'm doing it right, right? And how Paul encourages these young believers, these friends of his, and so we're going to continue looking at that this morning. Last week we talked about um, the, the internal evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit through the fruit in our lives, right? Our personal holiness. Um, that was in verse 3. And then we talked about um, the experience we have at conversion and how that looks different in people depending on, on how you were raised in the church or whether you came uh, to faith in Jesus after that in verses 4 and 5. Paul's going to continue talking about experience in verse 6 for us today, but he's going to talk about our experience after conversion. He's going to say, okay, and you experience this, this kind of discipleship after conversion, and then he's going to come back again, and he's going to talk about external evidence, external validation from God's people that, yes, indeed, they are in the faith. And then we're going to wrap all of that stuff up together and talk about, as we did last week, the expectation of where all this is leading to. What do Christian experience and Christian evidence, what direction is that sending our obedience in the gospel? So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So uh, let me again read from verse, uh, the, the second, ver second sentence in verse 5. That's where we're starting. He says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Um, I have been blessed by um, several men in my life to have had a, uh, just some really, really good mentors, um, some, some men who took time to bless me personally. One of those men, his name is Bill, um, is when I lived in Birmingham right out of college. And I've shared this before, um, but I was uh, pretty severely bullied in junior high, which for me was seventh, eighth, and ninth. 
And as a result of that, I developed a lot of uh, social awkwardness, relational difficulty. I did not know how to interact in groups. I didn't know what to say. I had a lot of um, self-deprecating humor that was really not helpful to conversations. And I just was really uncomfortable. I felt a tremendous amount of social pressure. I didn't know what to do. And, and, and this man, Bill, took me and not only was with me in those situations, but actually formed in me interpersonal skills, actually taught me how to relate to people, um, both through interactions and through curriculum. Like, it was a whole amazing thing. I spent nights in his house. We watched It's a Wonderful Life together at Christmas with his family. We did dinners. We did events. We went on mission trips together. We taught together eventually. It was uh, an amazing experience. And I tell you that to say, we'll talk more about some, some different things later on, but I tell you that to say, if Bill walked in here right now, you would say, oh, I've heard Dan talk about you. I know what kind of man you are because of how I've talked about you, right? Because, and I can tell you that Bill is that man because he has proved himself to be that man, right? He has proved himself among us. And that's what Paul is saying here. You know what we were like and how we were when we were with you. You know how genuine our experience was together. You experienced it with me. So you know what kind of men we proved to be. And then he goes on and he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That the natural outflow of Paul's example was that they became imitators of Paul. Um, the word imitator is where we get the word in English, mimic. Um, and so that's, that's what that word is derived from. And it's the most basic form of learning, isn't it? You've heard uh, we've got a lot of educators in our, in our room, right? Uh, the old educational saying, more is caught than taught, right? Um, imitation is one of the most basic forms of learning. And um, there is a spectrum of discipleship that you even see in this passage. And on one side of that spectrum, we have instruction, right? Like kind of what we're doing right now, right? Where you, maybe you, I mean, you know me because you've, you've been around me for, you know, some time, but you, maybe you haven't been to my house. Maybe you haven't seen me around my family. Maybe you haven't seen how I work, right? So there's a, there's a distance between us, right? But then on the other side of that spectrum, you have this, we're doing life together. We're doing community together. We're sharing our lives and our souls, and we're learning from each other and growing each other in community together, right? This whole, this, those two extremes represent the whole spectrum of what it means to imitate Jesus uh, and to imitate those who come before us in the faith. That's how the faith spreads. That's how the gospel grows in our lives. And it's the natural pattern that we see here in the text. And even though Paul is highlighting a particular way where he's saying, you are specifically imitating myself and Jesus uh, in the fact that you received the gospel in the midst of suffering and you still had joy, right? That's what he's particularly highlighting. Paul's command or, or description of imitation is much broader than that in the New Testament. He only uses it four times in total. 
In all of those times, he is calling people to imitate himself as he imitates Jesus. And remember, if you didn't know this about Paul, but Paul, before he began his public ministry, and you can read about this in Galatians 2, he himself spent three years alone in the wilderness learning directly from Jesus. So that Paul himself is imitating what Jesus did with him when he goes and lives with the communities that he ministers to, which is awesome. And so there's this uh, experience after conversion of discipleship and growth in the faith that continues as evidence in our lives, right, that we are maturing and growing in the faith. And you can look back at your life and say, yes, maybe, even as we said in our confession, maybe I'm still struggling with this sin that I've struggled with for a long time, but I'm making progress in it. And even though I'm not where I want to be, I can still look at that and say, yes, the Spirit is here, He is working, I understand the experience, and I'm moving forward. And it gives us confidence. So Paul moves from there uh, beyond experience into, back into evidence. Uh, so look with me at verse 8. Or sorry, verse 7. He says, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Not really sure if I'm saying Achaia right or if it should be Achaia, but that's what I'm going with. That's how I learned it. I say some of the books of the Bible wrong still. Hag I say Haggai a lot, and it's, it's Haggai, but it's just, you know, it's what happens. If you didn't see the map a couple of weeks ago, right, just so you can get a reference of what Paul is talking about, right? Paul starts down here. He moves across. Here's Macedonia, right? And Paul is saying, you became an example in all of Macedonia and Achaia, which is where Paul is, right? Paul's writing this from Corinth. Achaia is modern-day Greece. So he's saying everybody on this side of the bay, basically, they've all heard about you. They've all heard about what's happening. Now, some of that's going to be from Paul and Silas and, and Timothy, right, who are writing this and who have traveled. But some of that is going to be from the fact that Thessalonica, if you recall, is a cosmopolitan area. It is an urban epicenter situated on the main east-west road, right, from Rome to the Eastern Roman Empire, on the main north-south roads, as well as it's a port city from which commerce goes out. It is a cultural epicenter and an epicenter of trade. And so the, the word of the Thessalonians, what has happened to them and what they are going through has spread throughout the entire region. And Paul continues on, he says, For not only has the word sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned, from God, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul is trying to comfort his friends who came to faith and are suffering because of it. From people in their community, maybe people they've known for years, maybe family friends, right? Maybe people they've done business with for a long time. And one of the things that he says to them 
is other people are talking about your faith. And it shows us how important it is when we are going through times of difficulty like this, how important it is not to isolate and to have the community of faith with you and to reach out to those who are hurting and give them comfort and encouragement, right? That's what he's doing here. He's, he's going out and he's saying, look at the community of faith. The community of faith is affirming what you are doing. They are affirming you in the Lord. They are affirming uh, all the evidence that they see and the fruit they see in your lives. And they're giving you encouragement. Draw strength from that. And one of the things we talked about this last week when we talked about um, how we look at testimonies and church membership. But one of the things, if you're a member of the church, that should bring you encouragement when you're struggling with your faith is that you have... Um, Leaders in your church who have come to you and said, we affirm in your life the work of the Holy Spirit. We affirm the grace of God. We see it. We recognize it. And when you're feeling like, uh, you know, it, you don't feel close to God, to draw strength from that and to say, there are people who have seen that and affirm me in that and I can continue. And that's great. We do the same thing with our leaders um, it's one of the reasons why it's so important for Pat that we call him as a congregation because there are days when you don't feel great as a leader and you look back and you say, no, God has spoken through these people and he has called me and they affirm what I am doing, right? We need the community of faith together to encourage one another, right? Um, Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another daily and so much the more as you see the day of Christ approaching, because we all need it. We all need it. And I love this example that he gives here um, in 1 Thessalonians. So we talked a little bit about um, the experience after Christ, right? The discipleship that comes through that, the imitation. We talked a little bit about uh, the further evidence, that evidence outside of ourselves. Where does all of this lead us together? And how do we move together in it. Comes down to verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers, from, delivers us from the wrath to come. So um, this is a continuation of the sentence in verse 9. So he says, they themselves report to you, and you could skip the rest of verse 9, right? And say, for they themselves report concerning us how you turn, like, so instead of saying how you turned, how you were, how you wait for his son from heaven, right? Like, like, there's this sense in the verse that turning to God from idols, right? And these would have been, I mean, literal idols in their lives, right? Wood, stone, silver, gold, right? These would have been literal idols. How they turned from that, and almost the flip side of that is the waiting for the sun from heaven. Do you see that? It's part of the same sentence. They report how you did this and how you wait for this. That it's a basic part of what it means to be a Christian to expect Jesus to come again. Okay? It's a basic part. In fact, if you go and look at all of the speeches in the book of Acts, in every single speech, there is a reference to the coming of Jesus. 
And they say, you should know that Jesus is coming again to judge the world because God raised him from the dead. And this is the proof that this is going to happen and that Jesus is the only way of salvation. It's a basic thing. And even if you want to go look, there's another passage and we won't go there for time. Um, Hebrews 6, which describes uh, kind of a basic principles of the faith. The last basic principle of the faith is the, the, the final judgment day. Right? Resurrection of the dead and final judgment. It's a core tenet of what it means to be a Christian. And that is, as we said last week, the direction that our obedience is taking. It's how we're moving is in that expectation. And so um, the word wait is, uh, is interesting, and it wasn't something I kind of was expecting when I was studying the passage. Because wait is used all the time in Scripture. Like, oh yeah, to wait. What, what does waiting mean? In this case, um, I wish they'd used a different word. Um, this is the only time in the entire New Testament this word is used for wait. It's the only time. And wait appears like a lot. <laughs> like there's a lot of waiting in the New Testament. And, uh, but this is the only time this word is used by anybody, not just by Paul. It's only used four times in the Greek Old Testament. Let me read a couple to you just real quick give you an idea. Um, Job 7.2, like a slave who longs for the shadow and like a hired hand who looks for his wages. In Jeremiah 13.16, it says, give glory to God, to give glory to the Lord your God before he brings the darkness. And while you look for the light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. The waiting that Paul means to communicate here is like a worker who is waiting to be paid. It's something you expect. It's more like a waiting. Like I'm just, I'm just waiting for it to happen. It's not like waiting like, I don't know if this is gonna work, you know, I'm, okay, or I'm here, I'm just kinda like, you know, okay. Yeah, I'm just waiting for something good to come along, you know. It's not like that at all. It's this expectation, and because, I know at least for me, because I'm 2,000 years removed from when this stuff happened, it's easy for me to just think that I'm just going to keep waiting too. But Paul is saying, no, we, we should be expecting, we should be expecting that Jesus is coming soon. And we should be living our lives in light of that expectation, right? When we talk about one of the messages of Thessalonians is, you should be living as befits God's people. One of the things that befits God's people is an expectation that Jesus is coming soon. And particularly in our verse here, um, it says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we're waiting for, for a particular aspect. And that particular aspect here, he says, is the deliverance from the wrath to come. Um, deliverance is a word we don't really use a lot. I like the word rescue. In the New Testament, there are, um, well, really kind of actually all of Scripture, but you see it a lot um, in the New Testament. There are four different ways that God primarily talks about salvation, right? One of those is justification. It's a judicial action, right, whereby our sins are counted on Jesus and his righteousness is imputed to us like we read in our catechism today. 
The second one is reconciliation, right? The restoring of a broken relationship that we were at, at enmity with God. We were against God because of our sin. And through Jesus, the mediator, he has reconciled us to himself, right? The third one is redemption, right? That Jesus, by his blood, has bought us back to himself. We who are lost have now been saved. And this fourth one, which is here, is rescue. Rescue, that Jesus rescues us from something uh, because we need rescue, because we are helpless, right? Listen to some of the things in the New Testament that Jesus rescues us from. He rescues us from the domain of darkness in Colossians 1.3 and transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son. He rescues us from persecution and suffering in Romans 15.31 and 2 Thessalonians 3.11. He rescues us from danger in 2 Corinthians 1.10. He rescues us from trials in 2 Peter 2.9. He even rescues us from our own evil in Romans 7.24 when Paul says, who will set me free? Who will rescue me from the body of this death? And even as Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, 13, right? Lead us not into temptation, but rescue us from evil. He's talking about rescuing us from evil inside of ourselves. Rescuing us from our own selves. How awesome is that? That is what we are waiting for. Eagerly for Jesus to come back and rescue us from all of those things. Amen. So how do we put this all together? Peter asks that question in his, one of his letters. Um, it's 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. I won't read them. Um, but he asks the question, he says, if this is the promise, if the promise is, Jesus is going to rescue us. He's going to give us a new heavens and a new earth. They're going to be full of righteousness, right? And there's not going to be any more possibility to sin. If that's, if that's true, then he asks the question, what sort of people ought we to be in holiness and godliness expecting and longing for Jesus to come back and do that? What kind of people ought we to be? You see... When, when we're taking the experience that we had in Jesus and when we, we start applying personal holiness to that and that starts working itself in us, what we are doing is bringing something from the future new creation forward into today, right? Think about it. Think about it. In Luke 5, right? When Jesus goes and he talks to the leper, Right? You guys know leprosy is contagious. And you think about this like with COVID, it's super contagious. You couldn't touch a leper. In Luke 5, when Jesus touches the leper, Jesus' righteousness infects him instead of the other way around. The new creation is brought forward in Jesus and it spills out all over. So that even a woman who's been suffering from bleeding just touches his garment and is healed, it spills forth. The new creation is launched into us through our experience of Jesus as we, send it, uh, as we live it out in front of others. And Peter's asking the question, 
if we know that and we know how good and how right and how true that righteousness is and how much the new creation is, shouldn't we be living that in front of everyone? And how do we do that? And what kind of people should we do? What kind of people should we be in doing that? When you look at it that way, you see that joy overcomes sorrow. Right? Love overpowers fear. Hope overshadows despair. And we start bringing, bringing that new creation in. And it's beautiful. And I pray as we go forward this week that each of us would find a way for us to do that as we wait for him to make all those things right. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you come quickly? Oh, would you make all things right? Even as we have heard uh, more about things that uh, have gone wrong, even this week, even as things have, have not gone the way we've intended. Father, you know, and you are good. Would you teach us to long for and to expect your return? Would you teach us to live as befits your people? In true righteousness and holiness, would you teach us to show what you made men and women and children to look like Would you be pleased to bring forward new creation in us and through us? In Jesus' name, amen.